Good morning and welcome to Diagnosis and Management of Localized, Locally Advanced and Advanced Kidney Cancer, presented by the AUA. We strive to offer outstanding educational courses and greatly appreciate your evaluations and general feedback so we can continuously improve our programs. We, we thank you for joining us. Before we get started, I'd like to go over a few items so you know how to participate in today's event. First, I'd like to extend a special thank you to our course director, W. Marston Linehan, for planning an excellent educational course. We thank you for your dedication and commitment to urologic education. Thank you as well to our faculty for their time, talent, and expertise for today's program. The AUA is accredited by the ACCME and designates these other activities, live virtual activities and enduring materials for a maximum of two AMA PRA category one credits. Evaluations are very important to us. Course evaluations and CME credit will be administered electronically on the AUA 2021 site immediately following the live program today. As the AUA continues to develop virtual education that meets your needs, we welcome your feedback regarding both the content and format of this activity. Please visit AUA 2021.org to complete your evaluations and credit claim. All persons in a position to control the content of an AUA educational activity are required to disclose any relevant financial relationships with any commercial interest. Please visit AUA2021.org to view faculty, education council, and COI review workgroup disclosures. American Urological Association would like to thank AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers, Squibb, and Merck for their generous support of this educational program. This activity is meant to be educational in nature and in some instances reflects the opinions of the presenters. The information does not guarantee accuracy of claims submitted. Please verify the accuracy of individual medical claims submitted and please follow individual insurer's rules. I will now turn the activity over to our course director, Dr. Linehan. W. Marston Linehan is a chief of the urologic oncology branch at the National Cancer Institute, National Institutes of Health, Bethesda, Maryland. After completing his internship residency and fellowship training at Duke University Medical Center, he began his career at the National Cancer, Cancer Institute in 1982 with a with positions as senior investigator and urologic in charge at NCI. It's my pleasure to turn it over to Dr. Linehan. Thank you very much. Good morning, everyone, and welcome. So I'd now like to introduce our faculty. And we have a really great uh, faculty. Um, I'm happy to introduce Dr. Mark Ball, Associate Program Director of the Urologic Oncology Fellowship, Senior Staff Surgeon at the National Cancer Institute, National Institute of Health. He's board certified, of course, at American Board of Urology. 
very happy to have Dr. David McDermott with us. David, Dr. McDermott is Chief of Medical Oncology at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. He's Director of the Cutaneous Immuno-Oncology Programs, Co-Director of the BIDMC Cancer Center Immunotherapy Institute. He's leader of the Dana-Farber Harvard Cancer Center Kidney Cancer Program, and he is co-investigator for the National Cancer Institute Specialized Program of Research Excellence SPORE grant, one of the great prostate cancer programs in the country focusing on kidney cancer. Dr. Ramaprasad Srinivasan is an investigator and head of the molecular cancer section in the urologic oncology branch of the National Cancer Institute, graduated from Bangalore Medical College, India, attending his MDBS degrees. Dr. Srinivasan subsequently pursued a graduate study at MD Anderson in Texas, where he got his PhD. He came to NCI in 1999 after completing his internal medicine residency training at the University of Texas Health Science Center to pursue a fellowship in medical oncology and is now, as I mentioned, investigator and head of the molecular cancer sections. So we will now get started with our presentations. So I'm going to talk briefly about the genetic basis of kidney cancer and the implications for us as urologic surgeons in diagnosis and management of kidney cancer. Now, when we started our work, kidney cancer was the single disease. We managed all patients the same, gave the same agent the same therapies, none of which work, did the same surgeries for all of our patients. We now know that kidney cancer is not kidney cancer. It's a number of different types of cancer that just happen to occur in this organ. Different histologies, different clinical course, responding differently to therapy, and as we'll show you, caused by different genes. We now know of 18 different genes that cause kidney cancer. Now, why are we interested in this? One, as urologic surgeons, it'll help us manage these patients. Do we do active surveillance or do we do surgery? What kind of surgery do we do? Robotic versus open, does that make a difference? Turns out it does. Nucleation, should we just nucleate them all? Should we do wide margins on them all? A lot of it depends on the histology and the gene. What types of therapy should we give these patients? And you'll hear two wonderful talks about therapy. You'll really learn a lot. I know I will. Uh, should we use agents targeting the VEGF, VHL, HIF, VEGF pathway? Should we use agents targeting the MET pathway or uh, the so-called IO drugs targeting PD-1, PD-L1, CTLA-4? 
Well, we'll hear a lot about that uh, this morning. Well, what do we know about the genetics of, of kidney cancer? When, when we, how did we figure that out? What do we know? What we know today, most of what we know today, we've learned from studying the inherited forms of kidney cancer. And we're gonna talk about four briefly. We're gonna talk about clear cell kidney cancer, type one papillary, type two papillary, and then TFE3 kidney cancer, just to illustrate how we manage different types of kidney cancer. So when we started back in the 80s, we showed that there was loss of a segment, you can see on the left, of chromosome three in tumors from patients with clear cell kidney cancer. Well, we wanted to find the gene. We, this, this work suggested to us that there was a disease gene on chromosome three for clear cell kidney cancer. But this was 13, 14 years before the human genome was even sequenced. We had no map. So what we did was we switched to studying families with kidney cancer. And we started with the most well-known one called von Hippel-Lindau, VHL in which patients are at risk to develop tumors in a number of organs, including, of course, the kidneys, where they're at risk to develop bilateral, multifocal, clear cell kidney cancer. These are always clear cell. These patients, you'll see, get tumors and cysts in their kidney. And over the years, we've managed a large number of patients, actually we're now up to 1,100 patients, uh, from over 400 families and have performed surgery on many, many of those patients over the years. And we've developed an approach to management. And that is patients with these small clear cell kidney tumors, we recommend active surveillance until the largest tumor reaches three centimeters, at which time we recommend surgical intervention. Now, with this approach, over the last 34 years, even though a number of our patients have either come to us with metastatic disease or developed metastatic disease to date, as of May 22nd, 2021, we have not yet had a single patient develop metastatic disease when managed in this fashion with VHL clear cell kidney cancer. Now, most of our patients, almost all of them, you'll hear a lot about this from Dr. Ball, we manage now, of course, with surgical therapy. So this is how we manage those. We do an enucleation. I just wanna show you this one brief video. So this is a patient with VHL clear cell kidney cancer. As you can see, we're enucleating this. We're coming right around the tumor, not leaving much of a margin. There's a little pseudo capsule. We're coming around that. We've taken out as many as 93 tumors from a single individual. It'd be hard if we went wide, of course, to have any kidney left. But that's how we manage those. So that's clear cell with VHL gene mutation. So how did we find the gene? Well, we brought patients here. This is the National Institute of Health, this 300-acre campus. What you're looking at right there is the hospital, the, the NIH hospital, called the clinical center and the urologic surgery program, of course, is right in the middle there. We brought patients. We did a linkage analysis. We localized 
the, the HL gene to chromosome three. And then we identified that gene in the spring of 1993. This is the VHL gene. It's what we call a three exon gene. And we're looking for mutations that segregate with the disease. And that of course is what we find. We have found VHL mutation in every single one of our families. So we're thrilled about that. That's how you make the diagnosis of this disease. We've now got a blood test. It, every, you know, all over the world, people use, use that uh, test. Uh, we're thrilled about that. However, we wanted to know, was this the gene we look for for so long? Is this the gene for the sporadic, non-hereditary form of clear cell kidney cancer? And the answer to that is, yes, it is we find mutation of the gene or methylation, another way to inactivate the gene in over 90% of tumors from patients with clear cell kidney cancer. Okay, we got the gene. Now, well, we wanna, we wanna figure out how it works. We wanna be able to develop therapies. This was a totally new gene. We found it completely novel. We had no idea how this worked. So we started uh, looking at this and we and others have shown that the VHL protein, the VHL gene, forms a complex, and that complex targets another pro group of proteins called hypoxia-inducible factor, if for ubiquitin-mediated degradation. And what happens here is this is oxygen-sensitive. So when there's normal oxygen in the cell, the complex targets HIF and degrades it. However, when the cell is short of oxygen, hypoxia, the complex cannot target and degrade and, and, the, and HIF accumulates. Well, HIF is a transcription factor that drives other genes like vascular endothelial growth factor, VEGF, or GLUT1, which brings sugar into the cell, or PDGF, which drives the cell. And that's what our cancer does. Now, this complex and that VHL is an oxygen sensor. The people who did this were awarded the Nobel Prize, Bill Kalin, Peter Radcliffe, and Greg Semenza for showing that VHL HIF is an oxygen sensor for the cell. Now for us, we're very interested in knowing how this leads to kidney cancer. And so what we've shown is that when the VHL gene is mutated, is damaged, either on the right side, what's called the alpha domain, the, the you can't find the complex, or on the other side, left side, the beta domain, you can't bind to HIF for degradation. Either way, HIF accumulates. And that's what happens in clear cell kidney cancer. That's all it is, it's very simple. It's as though the cell thinks it's short of breath. It needs more blood vessels. It needs to grow. It needs to bring in sugar to grow. And that's what cancer is. Now, understanding this pathway is what provided the foundation for the development and FDA approval of nine targeted drugs that target the VHL pathway for patients with advanced kidney cancer, as you can see here. Now, we see 
you see remarkable responses and just makes my knees weak really to think about it. However, we want to do better. So we and others, our group and the Kalen group, showed that HIF-2 is a critical part of the VHL-HIF pathway. And that led to the development of small molecules, a drug now called Belzudafan, which targets the HIF-2 pathway. And you'll hear some remarkable data uh, on how this is being used now as a very selective drug for use in patients with von Hippel-Lindau VHL, as well as patients with advanced clear cell kidney cancer. This shows it being used in patients with VHL, as well as advanced kidney cancer. Now, how about, what are possible approaches though for people who don't have clear cell kidney cancer, like type one papillary and type two papillary? And I'll tell you right now, those are two very different diseases. And the third one we'll talk about is called TFE3 kidney cancer, which is what you see a lot in children and young adults. So we'll talk about that. But the first one is type one papillary kidney cancer. When we started our work, we had no idea what the gene or genes was associated with type one papillary kidney cancer. So we discovered, described, discovered, I got a, uh, uh, hereditary papillary kidney cancer in the Journal of Urology in the 90s. Uh, we called hereditary papillary renal carcinoma, or HPRC. And we found, and these patients get bilateral, multifocal type 1 papillary kidney cancer. Now, that's very similar to your patients with, that come with not, without hereditary kidney cancer, much more common, that get bilateral multifocal type 1 papillary kidney cancer. Now, this is what that looks like. You can see these multiple tumors in these patients' kidneys. And on the right, you see the type 1 papillary. Now, how do we manage these people surgically? They have type 1 papillary kidney cancer. What we do is the same thing, the same way we manage the clear cell kidney cancers. We wait till the largest tumor reaches three centimeters, at which time we recommend surgical intervention. So we recommend surgery when the tumors reach three or larger. And again, when we operate, we've taken, taken out as many as 60 tumors in these patients' kidneys. And these, we also, we do nephron-sparing surgery and we do a nucleation here, just like the clear cell that I showed you a minute ago. Now, we studied these families at NIH and we identified MET, M-E-T, as the gene for the familial form of type one papillary kidney cancer. MET is the receptor, the cell surface receptor for a growth factor called hepatocyte growth factor or HGF. And what we find is mutations in what's called the tyrosine kinase domain of this gene you can see here in tumors uh, and in the germline of those patients with hereditary papillary renal carcinoma. Now, that then led us, and you'll hear from Dr. Srinivasan about this, that then led us to do a trial, Dr. Srinivasan ran a trial, multi-center trial, using an agent called Ferretinib, which targets VEGF and MET. And Ferretinib, when you think about Ferretinib, you can just think cabozetinib 
almost identical drug produced by the same company. They went forward with that drug. So you can think of cabozantinib targeting the MET pathway. So that's type one papillary kidney cancer. We also find mutations like I showed you in the hereditary in sporadic, not as many, but we find those in sporadic type one papillary kidney cancer and, active, and amplification increased copy number in up to 81%. So MET is very important for hereditary, but also your patients with sporadic papillary kidney cancer. Now, this is another type of familial form of kidney cancer we described in the 90s, but a very aggressive form of type two papillary kidney cancer, we now know called hereditary lyomyomatosis and renal cell cancer, HLRCC. And those patients can get skin bumps, which are cutaneous lyomyomas. And a big tip off for you is this, is the lady, the women get uterine lyomyomas and they occur early, late teenage years, early twenties. And a very aggressive form of papillary kidney cancer. This is the first patient known with this. I operated on this patient in May of 89 and she went on to die, this 18 year old, seven months later of metastatic kidney cancer. Her mother died 14 months after that. And over the years, we've lost eight members of this family with aggressive kidney cancer. This is a 32 year old we saw with a very small tumor, a one half centimeter tumor. His father died at age 35 of metastatic kidney cancer. When he presented with that one half centimeter tumor, he had a two centimeter node in the hilum of the kidney, which was positive for type two papillary kidney cancer. In these families, we see these tumors in 10 year olds. We see them in 77 year olds. This is 24 year old who presented with a two tumors inside a cyst. We went way wide on this went wide, no enucleation, wide margins. We found tumor in the cyst, but also very much infiltrating the normal renal parenchyma. So you have to go wide on these. Also, we have to watch these people every year. It's a 43 year old who came, didn't have anything in her kidneys, was gonna be followed on the outside. Three years later, they did imaging, they read it as normal, uh, but there was this little lesion there, eight millimeters. She didn't, have, she didn't have imaging again for four years. We got a call from doctors at a hospital in Baltimore. They said, hey, we got one of yours over here. She's a 50-year-old. She now, she now is 50. She had this big tumor, 10 of 59 nodes. We lost her two and a half years later with metastatic disease. It's important that they have active surveillance every year. Surgical management should not be delayed in these patients. We do not wait for three centimeters. We do these open and we go wide, wide surgical margins and open on these. The gene for this is on chromosome one. It's a gene for a Krebs cycle, enzyme called fumarate hydratase. When FH that is knocked out, it poisons proleal hydroxylase and HIF accumulates like we showed a minute ago, but this is not due to VHL. These people get, make, these tumors make a lot of VEGF. And with Romsen of Assen, we developed an approach to target these patients with bevacizumab and lotinib and saw really dramatic responses you'll hear about in a minute from Dr. Sundar So the last thing I'll tell you about is this patient, this, this, this disorder. 
just another type of kidney cancer. And this is the first patient known with this, a young woman we operated, I operated on in 1987. I took out her left kidney. She still died nine months later of metastatic disease. She was 21, from, came from Ohio. She had papillary kidney cancer. We'd never seen this type of cancer before. We grew the cells in the lab and we found that it had a translocation from the first chromosome to the X chromosome. And we found out a couple of years later, in 1996 actually, that what was happening was a gene on chromosome one was translocating and activating a gene on the X chromosome called TFE3. So this was really the first report of TFE3 kidney cancer. So when you see kidney cancer in young patients, think of TFE3 kidney cancer. And this is the kind of histology you have. It's a aggressive type of papillary kidney cancer and your pathologist will stain it for TFE3. You can see it's very hot here, very bright, but what you want them to do for you, if they have one undifferentiated, they're not sure what it is, ask them to do a fish test and that will make the diagnosis. Now TFE3 kidney cancer is 42% of kidney cancer in children and young adults. Also, this 23-year-old we saw, law student, we saw had a two centimeter mass in her left kidney. You can see here, she already had positive nodes. So we do not do active surveillance with TFE3 kidney cancer. When we detect tumors, we operate and we go wide. This is a 12-year-old, just if you see, a kidney cancer in children and young adults, think of TFE3 kidney cancer. So what I've shown you is the kidney cancers made up is not simply kidney cancer, made up of a number of different types of cancer, different histologies, responding differently to therapy and caused by different genes. And it's our hope that understanding the genes that cause kidney cancer will make you and me, you and us, will make us better surgeons, We'll know when to do active surveillance, when to operate. We'll know what kind of surgery to do. Do we do a nucleation? Do we go wide? And also, we'll provide the foundation for the development of effective forms of therapy. I've already shown you two situations. We're targeting the VHL pathway and the MET pathway. With small renal tumors, we can see dramatic effect. And we're gonna hear from Dr. McDermott and Dr. Srinivasan some very exciting uh, data about uh, treating patients with advanced uh, disease. The next, I wanna introduce Dr. Mark Ball, who's gonna talk about surgical management of patients with kidney cancer. All right, good morning. Uh, thank you very much to the AUA for, uh, for uh, the opportunity to, to speak this morning uh, for this course. Um, I'm gonna be discussing decision-making during complex partial nephrectomy. And this is gonna be a guidelines and an evidence-based approach. No disclosures. And so uh, really a couple of, of different things to discuss. One is when to perform a partial nephrectomy 
what do the guidelines uh, suggest when we should be doing partial. We know that historically, uh, partial nephrectomy has been underutilized. Uh, perhaps now we're at the point, and at least in academic institutions, it may be overutilized. So when is the ideal time to, to perform a partial nephrectomy? And then really the bulk of the talk is decision-making during partial nephrectomy. So I, I really break that down along four axes, when to do open versus robotic, transperitoneal versus retroperitoneal, enucleation versus wide excision, and on-clamp versus off-clamp. Certainly a, a large component of that decision-making um, uh, here at the, at the NCI and, and elsewhere um, factors in what Dr. Linehan just discussed. Um, really knowing the genes can really uh, drive this decision-making. But I'm also gonna discuss other preoperative and intraoperative factors that may influence that decision. So choosing candidates for partial nephrectomy is a bit of a Goldilocks approach. There are some tumors that are uh, too cold, some situations too hot, uh, and then some that are, are just right. Now, as I, as I go through this, I want to remind you, this is an interactive session. If there are questions that come up, you don't have to wait until the end. Please, uh, please uh, type them in the chat and, and we can answer those. So what is a situation that's too cold? Um, well, that, that may be a case that's more appropriate for active surveillance. So according to the AUA guidelines, for patients with small renal masses, especially those less than two centimeters, active surveillance is an option for initial management. Now, this does not apply to some of the situations that Dr. Linehan discussed, like in HLRCC or uh, SDH-deficient kidney cancer. But for a patient without a family history, a sporadic patient, uh, this can be a, um, a good initial management option. Physicians should also prioritize active surveillance when the anticipated risk of intervention or competing risk of death outweigh the potential oncologic benefit of active treatment. So in other words, for patients who have uh, high other cause morbidity and mortality, uh, any type of treatment for their small renal mass may not be warranted. On the other end of the spectrum, some situations are too hot and those patients may be better served with radical nephrectomy. Uh, the AUA guidelines again suggest that radical nephrectomy uh, should be considered for patients where there is an increased oncologic potential. Uh, and what does that mean? Well, it's preferred in all of the following. For patients, um, if all of the following are criteria are met, if a patient has a high uh, tumor complexity and partial nephrectomy would be challenging, even in experienced hands. We know that as uh, technically there are many things that we can do, but they may not always be the best oncologic uh, option. For patients that have no pre-existing CKD, no proteinuria, no proteinuria, and who have normal contralateral kidney function, where a baseline GFR would likely be greater than 45, uh, radical nephrectomy is fine to perform uh, for these patients. So finally, um, partial nephrectomy um, is that just right in the middle situation where the anticipated oncologic benefit of intervention outweighs the risk of treatment and the competing risk of death, and their physician should, uh, should uh, pursue treatment. So now going to our sort of four axes of decision-making during partial nephrectomy, we'll start with, uh, with the first one, open versus robotic. And in speaking with, uh, with colleagues, um, this is probably the question that comes up most. How would you approach this? How should I do this? And I think that the, um, the number one sort of driver of this really should be surgeon experience and comfort. Uh, there, um, if, 
a surgeon thinks that in their hands, an open uh, surgery is safer, um, or they are more comfortable dealing with, uh, you know, scenarios B, C, and D that may happen, by all means, uh, open surgery is fine. On the flip side, uh, if, a, if a patient, if a surgeon is more comfortable with robotic surgery, uh, then, then that is, uh, that should be, uh, play a big role in the decision-making. As we see on the graph on the right, um, this shows uh, the proportion of partial nephrectomies performed open in the light box and robotically with the, in the dark shaded areas. And each year, more and more partial nephrectomies are performed robotically. This means that current trainees uh, will likely have more experience with minimally invasive and robotic surgery than open. So um, in the future, um, in the present, in the, in the future, I think that more and more complex surgeries will be tackled robotically. Other reasons why open surgery may be preferred, the need for cold ischemia. Uh, if there is a high complexity tumor in a patient with CKD, they may be better served with cold ischemia. That is certainly easier to accomplish during open surgery. As we heard from Dr. Linehan, for certain um, histologies and certain uh, genetic syndromes like HLRCC or SCH deficient tumors, uh, those um, are better approached using an, an open approach uh, because of the, the risk of uh, tumor going into the renal parenchyma and uh, of tumor spillage. And finally, for patients with prior renal surgery, historically open surgery uh, has been uh, emphasized, although we have some data to support uh, robotics in that population. So at the bottom, what do the AUA guidelines say? That in patients undergoing surgical excision of a renal mass, a minimally invasive approach should be considered when it would not compromise oncologic, functional, or perioperative outcomes. When we do robotic surgery, um, the uh, Da Vinci XI robot is the one that is probably most used today. So we can see our port placement for left-sided uh, surgeries here, four ports along the lateral edge of the rectus muscle. Uh, I do prefer two assistant ports um, at the umbilicus and, and just above. That is mirrored for right-sided um, cases uh, with the addition of a liver retractor, especially for upper pole tumors. For open surgery, um, the, the mini flank incision uh, that was uh, described by uh, Dr. Russo and others uh, is really utilized, um, can be utilized for most cases. Uh, and that is an incision between the 10th and 11th rib. The 11th rib is spared. And this is a low, uh, lower morbidity incision than what was historically used. Uh, and if you're interested in, in learning more about this approach, um, our group here at the NCI has um, a video on the AUA core curriculum that shows all the steps in performing a mini flank incision. So as I said, for redo surgery, traditionally reoperative surgery uh, was used. Um, uh, open surgery was used in the reoperative setting. But uh, here and, and elsewhere, we've begun approaching more and more complex kidney surgeries robotically, including second, third, and even fourth time partial nephrectomies, even after previous open surgeries. We can see why um, open surgery was traditionally used. Sometimes there is a, uh, a lot of fibrosis on the inside. You can see on the um, x-ray on the left, all of the previous clips used in bilateral partial nephrectomies. Each of these clips has fibrotic reaction around it, uh, making the planes distorted. Uh, sometimes no planes exist whatsoever. On the right-sided image, a patient with a prior midline and multiple levels of uh, flank incisions and thoracoabdominal incisions.
When we looked at uh, data from our institution though, uh, Sandeep Guram, uh, one of our senior fellows recently put this together um, for Journal of Urology. We found that in 192 reoperative partial nephrectomies performed here at the NCI, that not only was robotic surgery uh, as good, as safe as open surgery, it actually may have had some benefit. Um, there were fewer complications and less blood loss for robotic cases. Obviously, um, selection bias may play a role here, but it's um, but robotic surgery can be safely utilized um, in experienced hands. Some considerations for robotic redo surgery, the anatomy can be distorted, so we always place a ureteral catheter to identify the ureter. Gerotus fascia uh, should be preserved. Uh, it, it's a great natural barrier to prevent uh, adhesions uh, between the kidney and the liver, the kidney, and the small and large bowels. So we, we open it in a clamshell fashion and then suture it closed at the end. We don't use clips because those clips can promote for more fibrosis. Ultrasound early and often in these cases, and not just to identify tumors, but they can also be used to identify the ureter, especially if that ureteral catheter is in place, and the renal hilum. Um, again, the anatomy can be distorted, and it's not always uh, where you expect uh, these structures to be. And finally, uh, the hilum should be approached cautiously if it's been previously dissected. Um, you can't always uh, create a plane between the, the renal artery and vein uh, a second time. So sometimes the hilum, if it needs to be clamped, needs to be clamped in block. Um, and for exophytic tumors, we often will not uh, dissect the hilum uh, a second time. So uh, what does the literature say? In a meta-analysis of open versus robotic partial nephrectomy, uh, of over 60,000 patients. Uh, robotic surgery had less blood loss transfusions uh, than open surgery, albeit with a longer operative time. Uh, it was associated with fewer post-operative complications, uh, lower readmission rate, shorter length of stay, and interestingly, less uh, decline in EGFR. Moving on then to transperitoneal versus retroperitoneal surgery. Um, when is the ideal time to, to perform each? I would say that for most people, transperitoneal is the default option. It's the most familiar anatomy and there's more work in space. Uh, in my practice, that, that is certainly still the case, but uh, retroperitoneal uh, surgery uh, is an important tool to have in the armamentarium. So when is it, when is it good? It's good for posterior tumors um, because uh, you can access them very quickly. You can see the base of the tumor uh, to perform a better renorophy and you can access the renal hilum uh, pretty quickly. But um, that comes at the cost of less familiar anatomy, especially uh, in, in, the, in the first few cases, there is a, a little bit of a learning curve and there is less working space. So uh, this diagram shows our, uh, our port placement uh, using the Vinci XI for retroperitoneal surgery. Uh, it's centered around uh, just one centimeter above the ASIS, uh, and we form a, a line with four ports uh, spaced one hand breadth apart, um, uh, going towards the um, going towards the umbilicus medially. Uh, I have the ideal retroperitoneal uh, candidate in terms of tumor location is in the posterior aspect of the kidney, so uh, posterior to the renal hilum, and, and really this is better for mid and upper pole tumors than lower pole. Um, when you're dealing with a lower pole tumor, sometimes it's too close to the instruments and the camera uh, to, to, uh, to be facile with uh, the decreased working space and the retroperitoneal approach.
the literature here um, is not as robust as the open versus robotic literature, but in seven uh, studies, all retrospective uh, of just over a thousand uh, patients, um, we found that, um, whoops, that um, retroperitoneal surgery uh, was associated with uh, less operative time, less EBL, and um, less length of stay. Again, obviously subject to uh, some selection bias. Enucleation versus wide excision. We already heard from Dr. Linehan. Uh, again, there are some, um, some hereditary syndromes that we routinely use enucleation, uh, such as VHL, hereditary papillary renal cell carcinoma, uh, bird hog Bay, and others where we do wide excision, uh, like HLRCC and SDH. But what about for the um, for sporadic patients? Uh, we, we, we can use both uh, enucleation and wide excision um, under these circumstances. Um, it's, the benefits of tumor enucleation are you can preserve more parenchyma. You can see the tumor, so especially for complex tumors where it's abutting uh, hyalur vessels or the collecting system, uh, there's no guessing the depth. You can follow the pseudocapsule all the way around and you can avoid those structures or uh, purposely uh, take them as a margin. Uh, you can, um, like I said, avoid collecting system uh, entry completely. And even off clamp, if you are in this nucleation plane, uh, patients have less blood loss. So candidates uh, for this are patients with some forms of uh, familial kidney cancer, patients with multifocal disease or with severe chronic kidney disease. For the typical unifocal sporadic patient, uh, nucleation is not necessary. Um, if you're dealing with one tumor and want to ensure a negative margin, uh, it's fine to do a, a standard or even wide excision partial nephrectomy. What do the guidelines say? Um, for, um, for patients undergoing partial nephrectomy, a negative surgical margin should be prioritized and the extended parenchyma should be determined by the surgeon taking into account the clinical situation, tumor characteristics, including growth, growth pattern and the interface with normal tissue. And again, and this goes back to one of those questions at the beginning, tumor nucleation should be considered in patients with familial, multifocal, or severe CKD to optimize parenchymal mass preservation. In a study looking at functional comparison of nucleation versus standard partial nephrectomy, um, uh, you can see that warm ischemia and zero ischemia were, um, uh, were used in 51 and 49% of cases uh, for tumor nucleation. Uh, and for standard partial nephrectomy, warm ischemia and cold ischemia were used in 72 and 28% of cases, respectively, uh, meaning that you can perform off-clamp. Doing tumor nucleation also gives you ability to perform these cases off-clamp. Positive margins uh, were slightly increased in the tumor nucleation group at 8.5% versus 4.8% in the standard partial nephrectomy group, but this was not statistically significant. The final uh, axis here, uh, on-clamp versus off-clamp. So indications for off-clamp nephrectomy include multiple tumors not amenable to extended warm ischemia time, uh, patients with a solitary kidney, existing CKD, previous kidney surgery, especially when the hilum is scarred, and in planning for future kidney surgeries. For instance, for patients with hereditary kidney cancer, where uh, you know that they will need future uh, partial nephrectomies or maybe even a radical nephrectomy in the future, Performing um, the current case off-clamp, not dissecting the hilum, may prevent uh, scarring. So you, you save the hilar dissection for when you need it. And then, uh, as I mentioned in the last section, off-clamp 
partial nephrectomy and a nucleation kind of go together. So if you're planning for one, um, it's, it's probably best to consider the other. So some considerations for off-clamp partial nephrectomy um, in terms of blood loss, there is more blood loss with a nucleation than wider, a wide resection. So I always have a lap pad or a bolster um, in the patient for manual compression of the, of the base of the renorphy of the tumor resection defect. What does the literature say? Um, looking at off-clamp versus on-clamp, there are similar transfusion requirements, complications, and positive surgical margins. So uh, really, I see off-clamp as a tool, uh, again, to enable um, tackling multifocal tumors uh, primarily. So putting it all together, uh, the population of patients that we see at the NCI, um, we see all forms of kidney cancer, but a large percentage do have either hereditary or a non-hereditary but multifocal uh, kidney tumors. And so the most common um, combination that we utilize is a robotic off-clamp nucleation, mostly transperitoneal. And particularly that combination of robotic off-clamp and a nucleation can maximize the preservation, uh, renal uh, parenchymal preservation while minimizing blood loss and complications. So let's look at a few cases. <clears throat> Case one, this was a, <clears throat> this is a woman in her 60s she had a previous right partial nephrectomy and a previous left radical nephrectomy. So now a solitary right kidney that's been operated on before, and she has a three centimeter posterior renal tumor. Her uh, creatinine is 1.6, GFR of 35. So she has CKD. So what's the decision-making process here? We chose a robotic retroperitoneal nucleation off-clamp. A retroperitoneal because of the tumor location and that combination of robotic off-clamp enucleation to, um, to spare renal parenchyma and, and also avoid um, large EBL interoperatively. So here is a, a video of that case. We can see the tumor uh, on the ultrasound. And then just like in the video that Dr. Linehan showed uh, with enucleation, we really get very close to the tumor. Uh, and as we're going around the the, the base of the tumor, we're really brushing away all of the normal renal parenchyma. And you can see this is off-clamp, not much, much, much bleeding uh, when you really stay in this nucleation plane. Sometimes there are perforating vessels here that we can push off or use uh, point electrocautery to control. Um, but carefully um, pushing off all that normal renal parenchyma, we have a robust pseudocapsule here, no concern oncologically, but um, at the same time, maximal preservation of renal parenchyma. And so uh, in this case, uh, zero warm ischemia, zero minutes of warm ischemia, EBL was 100 cc's. This was a, a Furman grade two clear cell RCC with negative margins. Uh, and we were able to preserve her renal function on discharge. GFR was actually a little higher, probably an artifact of uh, of being well hydrated after surgery, but certainly uh, no decline in renal function. Case number two, this is a 31-year-old woman. She already had a left partial nephrectomy. Interestingly, germline panel is negative. This is not a hereditary kidney case. This, is, uh, this was just a, uh, a bilateral uh, renal tumor case, bilateral multifocal case. And this is a patient with uh, excellent renal function. Uh, GFR was 100, a central three centimeter tumor may be a candidate for a radical nephrectomy, but she's 31. So we, we decided to perform 
uh, a partial nephrectomy in this case. In our decision-making, we elected to do uh, robotic transperitoneal enucleation, but because of the depth of the tumor, uh, we did decide to clamp the renal hilum. So for a completely endophytic tumor, if we're, we're trying to enucleate, we have to, uh, we, we can't just excise all the normal renal parenchyma overlying uh, the tumor. So this is a, a paper that uh, Amir Labashi, one of our, our former fellows, recently wrote up. It was uh, published just uh, last month in, in urology, looking at our technique for resecting completely endophytic renal tumors. Uh, and what we do is we develop flaps in the renal capsule and uh, to expose the underlying tumor. And maybe a, a problem with the, the video on that slide, it looks like. But um, in this case, um, the warm ischemia time of 19 minutes, uh, 55 cc uh, EBL. Pathology was again, Furman, uh, Furman grade two clear cell RCC with negative margins. Um, again, excellent preservation of renal function with no recurrent or de novo disease, now 24 months uh, since surgery. Uh, last case, a 71 year old man with bilateral renal masses and a negative genetic workup. We biopsied the right mass, um, which was a, a smaller but central renal mass that showed clear cell RCC. The left was not biopsied. And so uh, we decided uh, first to tackle this big left tumor. And, and tackling that, we decided to do a robotic transperitoneal wide excision because of the size on clamp partial nephrectomy. So just in my last couple minutes here, uh, I'll just show you this video briefly of you've seen a nucleation. This is now a wide excision and you can see the difference. We use ultrasound to uh, demarcate uh, a margin that is uh, a centimeter, uh, half a centimeter to a whole centimeter away from the edge of the tumor. Instead of that smooth capsule, we see this sort of more uh, jagged normal renal parenchyma. We are on clamp, uh, so EBL is, is, is acceptable and we have a nice margin. This was an 8.5 centimeter chromophobe RCC with a negative margin and we were able to preserve uh, renal function. Tackling the other side, uh, what we found is, I, I won't show the video uh, because we're running out of time here, uh, but we saw, uh, you can see in the still at the bottom, this tumor is abutting uh, the main renal vessels. So we decided to do a radical nephrectomy uh, on the contralateral side. It was just too hot. And I'm glad we did because this, even though it was only three centimeters, this was a Furman grade three clear cell RCC invading the renal sinus, uh, the renal sinus fat. So uh, this patient, uh, GFR after bilateral surgeries uh, was 38, but um, he is, has no evidence of recurrent disease and uh, is not on hemodialysis. So in conclusion, the decision to perform partial nephrectomy, we have to weigh the oncologic risks versus other competing risks of surgery. Uh, it requires um, the input of patient, tumor, and surgeon factors. And being facile with each of these four domains uh, gives you more tools in the armamentarium. Two to the fourth power gives you 16 surgical options uh, when uh, performing partial nephrectomy. So again, thank you for your time and um, address any remaining questions at the end of the talk, at the end of the four talks. Thanks.
So our next speaker will be Dr. David McDermott. Uh, good morning, and Marcin, thank you very much for the kind invitation, and thanks to the organizers. I'm here to speak to you today about how immunotherapy feeds, fits into the treatment algorithm of patients with uh, advanced kidney cancer. Um, in the past, this has been a discussion mostly about the metastatic setting, but starting next week at ASCO, uh, this is a story that's going to move into the adjuvant setting, and urologists are playing an increasingly important role in making uh, treatment decisions because of these advances. So I hope this talk is even more relevant than normal. Uh, here are my disclosures. And these are the folks, as Marcin mentioned, the, at the Dana-Farber Harvard uh, Cancer Center Kidney Cancer Program. I'm going to be talking a lot about their work. So uh, immunotherapy for solid tumors is actually a, a surgical story. Uh, it was developed uh, in the 80s uh, by folks like Dr. Steven Rosenberg at the National Cancer Institute Surgery Branch. You see him here on the cover of Newsweek talking about interleukin-2. And it was these deep um, and durable responses that his group saw with high-dose IL-2 that led to its approval, first in kidney cancer and then in melanoma, um, and it was this aggressive approach that honestly didn't work for most patients, but established a, a principle that with immune therapy, you could take a metastatic cancer and put it into remission and potentially cure uh, patients. The scientific discoveries that were made subsequently by folks like uh, Gordon Freeman and Dr. Hanjo, who won the Nobel Prize for his work with the PD-1 pathway, essentially allowed us to make advances beyond cytokine immunotherapy into the world of immune checkpoint blockade, you know, agents that uh, Dr. Freeman developed some of the earliest agents that actually could block the interaction between PD-1 and PDL one and block one of the natural breaks that the immune system places on, um, you know, uh, on a response to cancer um, and unleash its um, more of its full power against, uh, against a variety of tumors. This, these drugs were quickly converted from lab discoveries to actual agents that were tested in multiple uh, tumors, uh, sort of changing the paradigm for kidney cancer and a variety of other cancers. This is the paper from 2015 that led to the FDA approval of PD-1 blockade with nivolumab in advanced kidney cancer. Dr. Mozer uh, led this effort. Um, and you can see it, it, with this talk how much progress has been made in just the last five years since the initial introduction of PD-1 blockade for our patients. When we sort of think about how the immune system controls cancer, um, you know, or fails to control cancer, most of the patients we meet in the clinic, whether it's in the surgery suite or in the uh, oncology uh, clinic, are in a, a setting of immune escape. When you think about the three E's of immunoediting, most of our patients' tumors have escaped an immune response. Um, and PD-1 blockade essentially for most patients brings them back to a sense closer to equilibrium, meaning the tumor shrinks. But for most patients with single agent PD-1 blockade, you don't get complete elimination of the cancer. And obviously that's the goal. That's the goal of a surgeon. That's the goal of an immunotherapist to try to eliminate the disease. So how can we do that in kidney cancer? Well, uh, folks have sort of relied on preclinical experiments that suggest that the addition of other uh, uh, targets, like for example, CTLA-4 combined with PD-1 blockade or VEGF blockade com combined with PD-1 blockade 
preclinical experiments suggested that those approaches could enhance the immune response uh, to kidney cancer, and those were brought quickly into the clinic. What have we seen over the last several years? Well, essentially the, the old, second, old second line therapy, PD-1, has been fused with the old first line therapy, VEGF, in a series of pivotal trials that have led to the establishment of PD-1 blockade and VEGF blockade as a standard approach for patients with metastatic disease. This is one of those uh, seminal trials um, that was led by Dr. Serini and Powells that established PD-1 plus exitinib as superior to sunitinib. And there have been a variety of trials since then that have essentially shown the same thing. Sunitinib is no longer a, a firm standard of care in the front line for our patients. And Dr. Mozart led the effort to combine PD-1 blockade with CTLA-4 blockade, once again, proving superior to sunitinib for metastatic uh, clear cell kidney cancer. You know, the, one of the biggest questions, so if you were to go to a medical oncology meeting, which, you know, you may want to go, you may not want to be there, but at ASCO this, uh, you know, coming up next month, one of the big debates will be of all of these approaches, and these are all of the positive pivotal trials that have been um, seen in the last few years, you know, which regimen should be favored? Uh, most of these regimens on this slide are the, essentially the same theme, which is VEGF blockade plus PD-1 blockade, except for nivolumab and ipilimumab, which is PD-1 plus CTLA-4. And we spend a lot of time at these meetings uh, trying to determine which one is best for our patients. But I would argue that, uh, you, know, you know, these are some of the differences and you could, we could spend some time on this. If this was a medical meeting, we would spend some time on this. You know, there are certain advantages of PD-1 and VEGF. For example, the response rates are higher. So if you have a symptomatic patient and need a rapid response, this approach is probably preferred. Um, whereas the data with PD-1 and CTLA-4 suggests that if you're a responder, many of those responses are durable, like we saw with high-dose IL-2 um, in the past, which allows the potential for potentially stopping treatment. But to me, the bigger issue is this debate between PD-1 VEGF versus PD-1 CTLA-4, you know, what I try to argue to my colleagues is it's essentially a waste of our time. Um, why is that? Because for a variety of reasons. One, because cross-trial comparisons, as we all know, are flawed and we shouldn't do them, but that doesn't stop us. Um, also, as I sort of alluded to, the NEVO-IPI trial has much more follow-up than these other VEGF PD-1 trials. So follow-up being unequal, it's harder to make comparisons. But also, I think importantly, as a field of medical oncologists, we don't have an agreement on what I would call the hierarchy of endpoints, which is which endpoints are most important for patients. Um, and let me explain what I mean by that. Well, you know, essentially the question um, is which endpoints should rule. You know, a lot of people in my in medical oncology believe that early endpoints are most important. And what do I mean by an early endpoint? Well, what I mean by that is endpoints that develop essentially in the first two years after starting a treatment. These endpoints are often favored by industry. They're, they help with uh, FDA approval. Uh, and they're certainly important for symptomatic patients, as I mentioned before. But ultimately, I think from a patient's point of view, these later endpoints are even more important. Um, and those are, you know, sort of defined as endpoints that happen after two years of initiation of treatment. These endpoints are favored by surgeons, um, you know, like the folks listening in on this, on this uh, lecture, you know, 
the chance to cut is sort of the chance to cure was the motto I heard when I was in medical school. You know, the, op the, the only good outcome for a surgery of a cancer surgery was complete removal, elimination of the tumor. So the patient didn't have to come back for medical treatment. That's the same endpoint that's favored by our colleagues in the stem cell transplant world, where they focus on these uh, tail of the curve endpoints being ideal endpoints like duration of response and landmark progression-free survival and overall survival. But also there's a, th a third class of endpoints, which I would call durable endpoints, which are develop after the treatment stops. And those are most favored by patients, meaning patients don't just wanna be alive at five years, they would like to be alive and off treatment. And this is a category, a, a new sort of endpoint we are trying to define um, for solid tumors called treatment-free survival. And I'll talk about that in a second. So when you start looking at the trends that we've seen with PD-1, VEGF and PD-1 CTLA-4 with more follow-up, the data with PD-1 VEGF is not as strong as it was, at least initially. You see the hazard ratio for overall survival going up with time for the exitinib-pembrolizumab combination, whereas the hazard ratio for survival was not as, as strong initially, but it's maintaining itself, meaning um, the survival curves are, are flattening for our patients with PD-1 CTLA-4. And this can be also shown here, looking at progression-free survival for patients receiving PD-1 CTLA-4. You see that tail on the um, PFS curve, about a third of patients are uh, alive progression-free on that uh, first pivotal trial whereas we have yet to see a plateau emerge with the exitinib-pembrolizumab combination. And essentially I would look at, you know, sort of which combination is superior. I'm obviously pretty biased, but because of its ability to produce improvements in late and what I'll soon talk about is durable benefits, um, you know, we favor uh, at Beth Israel Deaconess, we favor IO combinations um, as our first initial treatment, but most people, um, particularly in community settings, will get PD-1 uh, and VEGF. So, you know, we talk about important questions, you know, which regimen should rule. Um, I think actually the work of, uh, this is Dr. Larry Einhorn in testicular cancer. This was a paper he published about 40 years ago where he argued that testicular cancer was a curable neoplasm. I, I would like to argue uh, and spend some time talking about how in kidney cancer today, I think we're actually dealing with a, a, a cancer that can be cured, maybe obviously not in as high a percentage as testicular cancer now, but maybe closer to what testicular cancer was like 40 years ago, and that we should work as a field to try to increase the remission or increase the cure rate for our patients. So getting back to this question, if you believe like I do that kidney cancer can be cured, then it's, it sort of follows that we should work to make cures more uh, common. Um, and when, you know, what, are the, what is the evidence that cure or remission is possible in metastatic kidney cancer? Well, this is some data that was published last year um, from that Checkmate 214 IPINEVO study. What you're looking at in blue is patients with getting durable responses off treatment. Um, this is just the patients who had complete responses. Similar, similar data was seen in patients who had partial responses. So there seems to be a connection between depth of tumor shrinkage with immune therapy um, and ability to live in remission. And we'll obviously have to wait for more data on this subject. The, you know, I'm not arguing that IO therapy should be applied to every patient. You know, for many years, we've been doing research 
trying to come up with predictors of response uh, to um, immune therapies with obviously very mixed success. Um, and this approach is gonna be important. I would argue even more important that we work on developing predictive biomarkers so we can just rationally apply these drugs to the patients most likely to benefit, in part because uh, uh, PD-1 blockade is about to come to the adjuvant setting. Um, and we'll talk about that in a second. Here's some of the biomarker work that we've done. Um, this is with colleagues as shown here from Genentech who, who made a major investment in trying to understand how kidney biology impacts re response uh, to treatment in their emotion 150 and 151 um, analyses. You know, they did a very comprehensive analysis of the tumor. This was followed up in the phase three study. You can see all of the tissue-based work that was done on this cancer cell paper, um, you know, looking at somatic alterations, PDL1 staining, you know, clinical risk, sarcomatoid histology, Essentially, um, everything but tumor mutational burden was associated with you know, greater uh, chance of response uh, to PD-1 blockade in this experiment, both infiltration of T cells, sarcomatoid differentiation, PDL1 staining. That doesn't mean we're ready to create biomarkers for clinical decision making, but we are we have a better sense of tumors that are more likely to respond to immune therapy than we used to. And, and in this work, they were actually able to break kidney cancer down into seven different subpopulations. Um, you know, based on RNA uh, sequencing analysis, this was one of the first perspective uh, trials to actually look at this in not just kidney cancer, but in any cancer, and finding that this T effector infiltrated um, you know, biology was more likely to respond to immune therapy. And maybe these are the patients that should get immune therapy. And some of these other groups need other approaches like angiogenesis blockade um, and even a new uh, novel therapy. So we're learning a lot about how to target kidney cancer um, from analysis of uh, kidney tissues. So other ways we can make more cures uh, more common in kidney cancer. One is by rationally applying it to the right patients. The other is to do novel uh, trial designs, bringing therapy up into the front line um, or even closer. Um, this is the Keynote uh, 564 study. This will be a plenary presentation by my colleague, Dr. Shuari at ASCO next weekend or two weekends from now, I should say. This is pembrolizumab versus placebo um, in phase and stage three patients. Uh, the press release says this is a positive trial. We obviously need to see the data, but if this data holds up with, with more scrutiny, it'll likely become an FDA approved regimen sometime in the next year or so, I would imagine. And this will have great impact on your uh, clinical decision-making when dealing with these patients um, in, in the urology clinic it will require much more a multidisciplinary uh, consultations. Um, this is another uh, preoperative PD-1 blockade approach that's being tested. This is certainly a novel design. When uh, Chuck Drake uh, first approached us about this concept, a lot of the people thought Chuck was uh, crazy. This, his concept here was taking a patient with localized kidney cancer um, and giving some of them PD-1 blockade before you take the tumor out and comparing that to just observation alone, sort of pre-surgical PD-1 blockade, the thought being that the drug in kidney cancer um, immune therapy is actually the T cells. So let's give PD-1 while the, we have the highest number of T cells around in the patient to stimulate a response. 
as I mentioned, that idea was thought to be a little crazy uh, back in the early, uh, maybe uh, 2012, but now it's becoming more established in other tumor types. So we're seeing responses in this neoadjuvant setting in lung cancer. This is the first randomized trial to look at this in lung cancer, showing a difference um, with preoperative uh, nivolumab in, in patients with lung cancer on the Checkmate 816 trial. So we'll have to wait to see if this is an approach in kidney cancer um, for the results of this so-called PROSPER study, but it suggests that even more, we're gonna be need to working closely potentially with our surgical colleagues to make decisions about when to give PD-1. <clears throat> Other ways that we can develop more cures in kidney cancer is to develop a novel targets. Um, Ram uh, Srinivasan is gonna talk about how, you know, some novel targeted therapies. I wanna talk about some novel immune therapies, things like vaccines, uh, novel checkpoints, CAR T cells are now being tested in kidney cancer. Uh, TIL therapy is also being developed in, in kidney cancer to hopefully enhance the immune response. What we're doing as a group up in Boston is we're doing single cell sequencing on patient tumors uh, to determine when the best time to apply immune therapy is. So for example, maybe not surprisingly, um, early stage tumors have far fewer exhausted T cells in them. Uh, this is work in, by David Braun and colleagues. Um, and there is also other uh, inhibitory factors in the tumor that we may be able to target. Um, you know, in future trials. So by doing this um, latest technology, single cell sequencing of tumors, we're, we're coming up with new targets and new ways of, of, of bringing these treatments to the clinic. So for example, um, they're using single cell, they're using sequencing data, both RNA and DNA to create uh, neoantigen vaccines. This is the work of Kathy Wu's group at, at Dana-Farber. These are in testing in the adjuvant setting. Um, we're also looking at novel immune checkpoints. This is uh, Gordon Freeman and Rupal Bhatt um, who work with us up in Boston. They believe they've identified a new um, uh, pathway, this so-called HHLA2 uh, KIR3 DL3 pathway that's expressed in kidney cancer and maybe a resistance pathway uh, to PD-1 blockade that they now can drug. Um, you know, in the preclinical setting, they're working on developing antibodies that can be used for human uh, testing. It's obviously a very strong group to be working on that, given Dr. Freeman's track record. In preclinical experiments, when they block this interaction, they can actually improve the anti-tumor uh, immune response. So we'll see if that holds true in human trials. But once again, what we learn from uh, human tissues is hopefully developing uh, new treatments for our patients. And finally, as I mentioned, trying to make cures more common in kidney cancer, we should also focus, I think, on, on novel endpoints, um, you know, more uh, surgical endpoints. I want to focus on a new one that we're developing called treatment-free survival. Uh, what is treatment-free survival? Well, it's a, look, it's a breakdown of all the time, different ways patients can live after treatment. Here in purple, they can live on protocol treatment. In gray, they can survive on subsequent treatment, but with immune therapy, they can live off treatment uh, in so-called treatment-free survival. And both the good and the negative of immune therapy can last after treatment um, is stopped. So we measure both treatment-free survival without toxicity and treatment-free survival with toxicity. And it turns out when you do that, not only is overall survival greater with CTLA-4, PD-1 compared to VEGF blockade, but treatment-free survival is twice as long. So patients are not only living longer, they're spending more time off treatment with the um, approach of uh, ipilimumab and nivolumab. So, you know, the, and 
when we talk about creating more treatment-free survival, one potential approach going back to um, our testicular cancer colleagues or our lymphoma colleagues is, you know, should we push for deep responses, you know, much like you do in, with a testicular cancer patient. So this is a look at the, uh, the NCCN guidelines for testicular cancer. As you know, when we don't get a good enough response to initial medical therapy, some patients are considered for a more aggressive approach. Um, to try to salvage them, to try to create those remissions, which may lead to cures. You know, how can we do that in kidney cancer? Well, one approach that's being tested in melanoma and other tumor types that we hope to test in kidney cancer in the coming year is TIL therapy, where work, once again, working with our surgical colleagues, this approach was also developed at the surgery branch at the NCI, where you take a surgical specimen out of a patient, harvest the T cells, reinvigorate them and then give them back to the patient in the setting of IL-2 and chemotherapy. It's obviously very intensive, not for everyone approach. And we don't know if it's gonna work in kidney cancer, but the argument would be, you know, can we test it? Should we test it to try to produce a more remissions uh, for our patients? So we hope to be doing that uh, next year. And sort of just in summary, I hope I've made the argument to you that we can make cure more common in kidney cancer through novel designs of uh, you know, trials, through novel targets, through novel endpoints, and hopefully through novel algorithms of you know, being more aggressive in patients who are motivated, much like this patient here, this is a patient of ours with metastatic kidney cancer, who's living in treatment-free survival <clears throat> following PD-1 blockade, and also trying to shorten his life at the same time by diving off the tallest bungee jumping platform in the world, um, which seems like a kind of crazy thing to do. But anyway, we wanna create more outcomes like this um, and hopefully with collaboration with our urologic colleagues, uh, we can do that. And there's a lot, to me, a lot more to be explored in the future. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, Dr. McDermott for a really fabulous talk. Uh, I mean, it's so exciting to see where we are today. And, and I really, really appreciate you also highlighting Sort of, you know, the critical role, I think, of the urologic surgeon in working with medical oncology and thinking about neoadjuvant plus adjuvant. And then also together, you know, who knows these exciting ideas about till therapy and all. We'll see. Uh, it's so exciting to, to hear about and the unbelievable advances y'all have made with the uh, immunotherapies as well as targeted therapies. Wow. Our next speaker is Dr. Ramaprasad Srinivasan. Uh, Ram, is, Dr. Sanvastan is, is going to uh, talk about targeted and other therapies uh, for kidney cancer. Thank you, Dr. Lenhan, for that introduction. And, uh... Uh, I've really, really enjoyed the talks uh, that preceded mine today. Uh, I'm going to spend the next few minutes uh, building on some of the themes you've already heard. Uh, I'll focus on emerging therapeutic strategies, both in clear cell kidney cancer and some non-clear cell uh, kidney cancer variants. Dr. McDermott very elegantly showed you over the last few minutes that uh, combinations of uh, VEGF uh, receptor targeting TAIs uh, and checkpoint inhibitors targeting the PD-1 axis or dual checkpoint inhibitors have become the mainstay of treatment in patients 
with newly diagnosed advanced clear cell RCC. As he noted, many of the tools we've had, which belong to one of these two categories, checkpoint inhibitors or wedge of targeted uh, TKIs, have been moving earlier and earlier in, in the course of the disease as viable and reasonable management strategies. Uh, what this does is, you know, it's, it's fantastic for people uh, who have just been diagnosed, but once uh, people progress on these, on these th therapies, as most will, uh, we don't have you know, great data telling us how to manage patients following progression on these frontline therapies. Situation is going to get even more complicated with uh, the advent of uh, possibly adjuvant usage of checkpoint inhibitors. Um, it's clear that we're going to need new approaches to treating patients who have exhausted these standard options. To try and look for these options, uh, some of us have gone back to the VHL pathway, which after all has been the, the, the basis for most targeted treatment strategies that have been used in patients with clear cell kidney cancer to date. Since the discovery of the VHL gene in the early 90s by Dr. Linehan and, and his colleagues, uh, we've understood a lot about how loss of that gene leads to kidney cancer. Uh, and uh, we've also understood by understanding this uh, or exploring this pathway better, how hypoxia or the, the cell's ability to sense or perceive hypoxia, real or imagined, can lead to kidney cancer as well as affect various other cell, uh, in its, uh, cellular processes. Uh, work that's led, as Dr. Hannah alluded to, uh, a Nobel Prize in, in medicine uh, not too long ago. What's further emerged over the years is that HIF2, uh, one of the HIFs that we see upregulated in response to VHL loss, uh, is more likely or more involved in cancer causation in VHL negative tumors. Ideally, we'd be able to target HIF2 alpha rather than downstream consequences as we've been doing for years now. Uh, but HIF2 has been an elusive target for drugs. It's been particularly difficult to target until four or five years ago when a group of uh, scientists from industry as well as academia got together and identified uh, a pocket in HIF2 alpha, which they could block with small molecule inhibitors and prevent it from then binding HIF1 beta, uh, and that dimerization being essential for function of, of, uh, of, this, of this particular molecule. Uh, the prototypic molecule PT2385 was very quickly taken into the clinic. And in the context of a phase one uh, study with an expansion cohort, uh, activity was easily demonstrated in patients who had been previously heavily treated uh, with metastatic clear cell kidney cancer. Um, response rates were around 14, 15%, uh, with a lot of patients demonstrating stable disease. One problem that became apparent fairly early in the course of studies with this drug was that there was signif there were significant pharmacologic limitations to this drug with a lot of interpatient variability in drug levels and pharmacokinetic processing. Uh, when you actually look at patients treated on this initial study and try to separate them out based on the steady state levels of HIF2-alpha and its metabolite, uh, it, it emerged in this ad hoc analysis that those who had higher steady state levels appear to do better. 
to try and circumvent the problems posed by uh, you know, these limitations, uh, a second generation agent called PT2977, also known as MK648 or Velzutifan, the latter name is what I'm gonna be using for the rest of my talk, was, was, was designed and again, showed very, very promising activity in early phase studies in patients with advanced clear cell kidney cancer with response rates in the mid twenties, but disease stabilization rates that uh, were much, much, much higher. Most uh, uh, patients who responded uh, or seemed to benefit from this drug also seemed to do so for reasonably prolonged periods as is shown in the swimmers plot uh, from, uh, uh, from, from a presentation Dr. Shweti gave a few years ago detailing the data from the study. Most importantly, this class of drugs seems to be very, very well tolerated with anemia being the most common side effect. Uh, so it's easy to use both as a single agent, but also as a combination partner, which uh, uh, you will, I think, hear more and more about as, 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 uh, as, as time progresses and new studies are designed. Belzutifan or MK6482 is now the subject of an ongoing phase three study in previously treated patients. Uh, and the agent is being compared to Evrolimus uh, in this, uh, in a global randomized study. Results are awaited. It's probably gonna take uh, a little longer for us to see what these uh, data uh, show, but you know, I'm very, very excited about the prospect of this drug and actually this class of drugs making a real impact in patients with clear cell kidney cancer. We really made headway in the treatment of patients with advanced clear cell kidney cancer by studying patients with, with VHL. Uh, have we then been successfully able to apply the treatment principles that uh, we've developed in patients with advanced clear cell kidney cancer to patients with actual VHL associated uh, tumors? Uh, as you know, the current management of VHL hinges heavily on surgical or ablative intervention. And while effective in preventing local symptoms and then minimizing the risk of metastatic disease, uh, it's clear that there is a lot of morbidity associated uh, with these surgical approaches. Most patients require surgical control of their disease uh, repeated multiple times during their lifetimes to remove not just kidney tumors, but also pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, CNS angioblastomas, and other lesions. Uh, with, uh, th th these, these procedures take a toll on the body and uh, patients at some point uh, want to avoid surgery at all costs. Uh, so we, as a, as a medical oncologist, has worked with urologists for a long, long time. Uh, I, I really begin to appreciate the need for complementary strategies that would help surgeons better manage these patients. Uh, we've looked at VEGF targeted agents in this patient population and found that those agents have modest activity and are associated with uh, but what this patient population really is prohibitive toxicity. So uh, there isn't widespread use of these agents because of these, th these limitations. We asked of the HIF2-alpha inhibitors that we've seen such promise in early studies with an advanced clear cell kidney cancer could then be used in patients with uh, VHL-associated tumors. And we conducted a multi-center global study uh, that's been reported in abstract form um, 61 patients were enrolled on this study. And when we looked to see what happened to the renal tumors uh, following treatment of these patients, 36% of the patients showed 
a confirmed response. Uh, what's not shown in this table, but uh, uh, what we know is that an additional 11 to 12% of the patients have had a response that is yet to be confirmed at the time of this, this analysis. Uh, HIF2-alpha inhibitors tend to uh, act slowly and continue to act for a long time. So it's not uncommon for patients to start off with stable disease and months later develop complete or partial responses. And uh, it's our expectation that the response rate in these patients is probably going to go up. Most patients seen on this trial had some degree of tumor regression as is uh, shown here. And responses tend to, tended to be very durable uh, with uh, a median duration of response or median PFS far from being reached on this, uh, on this study at this point. We also look at uh, the changes wrought by this group of agents in this patient population in a different way here. Uh, this is a spider plot showing that tumors in patients who were enrolled in the study showed a very distinct clear pattern of inexorable growth before starting therapy, uh, but with most patients demonstrating stability or shrinkage of tumors, it seems to persist following initiation of therapy. This is an example of the kind of responses we've seen with this, this drug. This is a patient with bilateral multifocal disease who's undergone prior surgery and is really hoping to avoid further surgery. Came on our study more than two years ago with uh, what I show here, two renal tumors, one on the right kidney and one on the left kidney, both demonstrating very impressive and sustained response following initiation of therapy. Dr. Linehan told you that uh, VHL affects multiple organs with uh, tumors very commonly seen in the pancreas and CNS and other organs. So do we have an impact on tumors that arise in organs outside the kidney with this group of agents? Uh, and shown here is a glimpse of what we see in uh, extra renal lesions associated with VHL. Patients who had pancreatic lesions, in this instance, all 61 patients in study had a pancreatic solid tumor. Uh, the response rate was around 64% while in patients with CNS hemangioblastomas, 43 of them, the response rate was 30%. Many of these patients actually had complete resolution of all evidence of disease, uh, around uh, 6% uh, in patients with pancreatic uh, tumors and around the same 5% or so in patients with uh, CNS hemangioblastomas. CNS hemangioblastomas are a source of significant morbidity in these patients requiring you know, surgery and patients often suffer, uh, you know, functional issues uh, uh, following surgery or due to these lesions themselves. It's shown here is a young patient who came on study with multiple CNS hemangioblastomas as indicated by the red arrows, both in the spine and in the cerebellum, showing, you know, unequivocal regression following initiation of therapy. We've also seen regression of tumors in, in the retina. These are again, very vascular tumors called retinal hemangioblastomas that are typically managed uh, by laser ablation, uh, but there's only so much real estate in the, in the, in the, in the retina. Uh, and only so many times you can perform these procedures without actually eventually impairing vision. Uh, and this approach is beginning to show early promise in controlling the disease process in the kidney and you know, hopefully offering an alternative to, to the surgical or ablative approaches. One key issue with this drug is uh, it is much, much, much better tolerated than the VEGF receptor targeted TKIs, as is 
shown uh, in this in this in this uh, slide. A lot of patients develop side effects, but most are very very manageable. Most are very very low grade toxicities, with anemia, uh, which is an expected side effect, as I told you, of this drug, being the most common grade three or four side effect, grade three side effect. Uh, and when it does occur, it's also very easily amenable to management. These data have led to the FDA considering a new drug application for this agent in patients with VHL. Uh, the FDA has gone a priority review to this, uh, this application. And we expect to hear on or before September 15th whether the FDA deems this drug worthy of uh, approval in, in this patient population. If approved, this is going to provide, in my opinion, a real alternative for the surgical management uh, in, in, the, in this group of patients. I'm going to switch now and spend the next few minutes uh, to outline some management strategies in papillary kidney cancer, which is the second most common form of kidney cancer that we encounter. To date, there are very few effective treatments for treating advanced papillary kidney cancer patients. Um, in the last six to 12 months, we have found from Dr. McDermott's work uh, that uh, pembrolizumab, a checkpoint inhibitor, does have activity in patients with uh, non-clearance kidney cancers, including those with papillary RCC, with uh, response rates approaching around 30%. More recently, a randomized phase two study that looked at the efficacy of a variety of different MET-targeted TKIs uh, compared to sunitinib demonstrated that one of these agents, a dirty tyrosine kinase inhibitor uh, that also targets MET, cocabazantinib, is superior to sinitinib uh, in this group of patients, while the more selective MET inhibitors did not seem to offer any benefit. Um, in this unselected group of patients with all forms of papillary kidney cancer, however, even with cabozantinib, the median PFS was only nine months and the overall response rate is only 23%. Clearly we can and should do better, but uh, how do we go about doing that? Um, we know, and have known for a long time that papillary kidney cancer is a very diverse group of malignancies. Type 1 papillary RCC appears at least in some cases to be driven by MET uh, and type 2, uh, an old designation which I like to uh, call non-type 1 because it's a very heterogeneous group of malignancies characterized by very distinct histologic uh, you know, subtypes as well as distinct you know, genetic alterations. It's characterized by many, many different alterations, which some of which at least are amenable to targeting. I, I'm of the strong belief that by really understanding the basis of these individual forms of papillary kidney cancer, we're going to be better able to target these subtypes of, of this variant and, and really make an impact on the management of patients with, uh, with papillary kidney cancer. I'm going to skip a couple of slides in the interest of time uh, and move to uh, some studies we did in the early uh, part of this decade with, uh, with MET inhibitors, they, studies that were driven by the finding that a subset of patients with papillary kidney cancer, those with a hereditary condition called HPRC, uh, had activating germline MET mutations. MET mutations are also seen in sporadic forms of papillary kidney cancer, uh, but only in a small minority, around 15 to 20% at the most. A lot of patients with papillary kidney cancer, however, have amplification of chromosome seven, which is where both MET and its ligand uh, HGF are located, leading a lot of us to postulate that that may be another mechanism by which MET drives these tumors. 
I, I don't believe at this point that that's entirely correct. Uh, uh, I certainly don't believe that chromosome seven amplification by itself makes a tumor MET driven. And this is what we showed very early in, the, uh, in 2013 with foretinib, uh, 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 a MET inhibitor, where we showed there are 67 patients uh, who were treated with this, with this drug. If you had a germline alteration in MET, uh, you had a 50% probability of having a, a partial response, with most of the others demonstrating very meaningful stable disease, many meaningful shrinkage of tumors that just didn't amount to a partial response. On the other hand, if you just had a gain of chromosome seven, your response rate was very, very modest, uh, five to 10% at, at best. Uh, this is further ex exemplified in this, in this graph, which really represents tumors from all 10 patients who had germline mutations, demonstrating that each single tumor in those patients uh, had some tumor regression. Uh, you know, providing proof of principle that if you have a MET mutation, MET inhibitors do seem to be effective. Uh, however, as we've seen from multiple studies, if you don't have a MET mutation, only a minority of patients seems to benefit long-term. Another subtype of kidney, uh, papillary kidney cancer where we seem to have made some headway is HLRCC or hereditary lyomyomatosis and renal cell cancer. Uh, that uh, Dr. Linehan described in some detail in his talk. Uh, I'm going to you know, skip a few slides and tell you a little bit about a study we conducted here at the NCI, looking at the combination of bevacizumab and erlotinib, a combination that was designed specifically to target metabolic consequences of fumarate hydratase uh, loss in this group of tumors. Uh, this study enrolled both patients with HLRCC and patients with sporadic papillary RCC. Total of 83 patients, 40 in the HLRCC, 43 in the HLRCC group and 40 in the sporadic group were enrolled on this study. Um, and the results are summarized here. Um, in the HLRCC population, the overall response rate was 72%, with uh, 31 of 43 patients demonstrating a partial, uh, 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 a clear response, including two patients who had a complete response. Most patients treated had some degree of tumor regression and uh, patients who did respond did, tended to do so durably with several patients staying on therapy for four years plus. The median PFS was a respectable 21 months. In patients with, uh, I'm gonna skip a couple of slides again as we're coming to you know, the end of my talk. Uh, in patients with sporadic papillary RCC, we also saw responses. Uh, but in keeping with the theme that when you have a, a therapy that you know, targets a very specific population, you're more likely to see uh, higher responses uh, uh, with, with the response rates and efficacy going down when you look at a more diverse population. Uh, we see that the overall response rate in this relatively unselected sporadic patient population with papillary RCC was a little lower, 35%. Uh, we still saw a lot of patients enjoying stable disease, a lot of patients demonstrating tumor regression, and a lot of patients, especially those who responded, uh, demonstrating durability of response, very, very similar to what we saw in patients with HLRCC. One of the areas uh, that we're exploring actively at this point in my group is trying to understand who these patients are in the sporadic papillary population that appear to respond so well uh, uh, and, and uh, do so in, in a manner that's very, very similar to that 
of the HLRCC patients. I'm going to stop there in the interest of time. Uh, what I've hopefully shown you in the last few minutes is that uh, there are a lot of uh, new pathways being pursued uh, to complement the strategies that have already been effective in patients with advanced clearance kidney cancer, especially strategies targeting the HIF-2 pathway. Uh, and I hope I've also shown you that uh, while we have a long distance to go in treating patients with papillary kidney cancer, uh, by picking the right patients, identifying suitable targets in those patients, and matching them with the appropriate targeted agents, we can make a lot more headway than we have been able to either to by treating papillary kidney cancer patients as one entity because they simply are not, as uh, we've learned uh, time and again over the last uh, 15 to 20 years. I'm going to stop there and allow some time for the group to answer questions. Thank you all for your attention. Thank you, Dr. Srinivasan, for really uh, exciting uh, talk. And uh, I know I've learned a, a huge amount. I, I also want to uh, just uh, mention to um, our audience, who are <clears throat> primarily urologic surgeons, just remind you a little bit what we've, what we've seen. We've heard exciting things about treatment of advanced kidney cancer, of course. But we've also heard uh, a potentially important role for you to think about in neoadjuvant, in other words, before you do surgery. We'll think about that. And also in the adjuvant setting, it looks like there's some exciting things coming up there as well. But the other thing that you heard about was small renal masses responding dramatically to therapy. Dr. Srinivasan showed you clear cell tumors, a huge percentage of those getting smaller on therapy. And he also showed you papillary kidney cancers with a certain mutation, that mutation, getting dramatically smaller on therapy. Now, that's a little bit new to us. So another thing that is in our future to think about, we're not there yet, these drugs need to get approved and all that stuff. But we may be thinking differently about how we manage small renal masses. Is there a role for therapy for those? Or you heard very elegantly from Dr. Ball about complex surgeries. Let's just say we had a tough partial with a big lesion. We wanted to save that patient's kidney. Does it make, will it make sense to give systemic therapy then to make it easier to do a partial? So we'll see together. I, it's too early to know the answer to those things, but there's some very exciting uh, things to think about uh, uh, now that's, you know, it's different than, um, you know, than, um, than, than, than we would have thought of. Um, Dr. Ball, I've got a question here that came up from one of our uh, colleagues here, and that is the following, very, very good question. Uh, I don't keep some people up at night, but other people less, and that is, the person asked the following. You gave very elegant uh, discussion about, uh, about enucleation, about partial refractive margin. What does the doctor do, your urologic surgeon do, what does he or she think 
about. They do a partial and they have a positive margin. Hmm. Yeah, uh, great question. And, and one that um, you know, we, we discuss at meetings and, and is addressed in, in the literature sometimes, but um, so a few different ways to think about that. How do we get a surgical margin, a positive surgical margin? Well, um, we, uh, I showed you a diagram of tumor nucleation. Sometimes um, if the pathologist does not see normal renal parenchyma and there's tumor up to the edge, even though there's a pseudocapsule, that could be called a positive margin. And speaking with colleagues um, in, in other institutions, that is sometimes a barrier to doing tumor nucleation, the fear of being called a, a false positive margin. Uh, other times, uh, the margin can be because there's either micro or even macroscopic disease that's left behind. So how do you differentiate between those three? I think really the key is, is your post-op imaging. Uh, if on post-op imaging, there is no disease seen, I don't think it, it warrants uh, doing anything until you see disease. Sometimes the question comes, should uh, there's a positive surgical margin? Do I need to do a completion radical nephrectomy? Uh, I think usually no, there, there may be some cases. Uh, maybe it's a really aggressive tumor. Uh, maybe it's uh, an HLRTC tumor like uh, Dr. Linehan described. Maybe it's a, it's a Furman grade four clear cell with sarcomatoid features. But for, for most cases, uh, I think that uh, close surveillance um, with uh, cross-sectional imaging will determine uh, which way to go. So Dr. McDermott, thanks again for an elegant, uh really inspiring talk. The, uh, wow. Uh, just chase here, uh, two patients. One comes to you with a metastatic clear cell and another comes, we'll say non-clear cell. I don't know. We'll say papillary metastatic. What do you start with in both cases? IO therapy? And if so, what IO therapy? Uh, well, we have an IO bias as was obvious in my, uh, talk. Um, but so if the patient is asymptomatic, um, we favor uh, for the clear cell patient IO-IO combinations of PD-1 and CTLA-4 because of the data that suggests that there's a, a tail on those survival and progression-free survival curves, um, knowing that if the patient fails to respond, you can move to a VEGF-targeted strategy after that. Um, that said, in the community, most of those people are getting treated with PD-1 VEGF combinations in large and in many centers, in large part because those combinations are somewhat easier to manage from a toxicity point of view. There's less, um, you know, IO toxicity when you leave out CTLA-4. Um, for non-clear non cell patients, there's no, as Ram mentioned, there's no approved regimen for that group of patients. But early data suggests that IO agents are more active there than we would have expected. So the old paradigm in the cytokine era was that cytokine therapies don't work for most patients. They work even less well for non-clear cell patients, so we shouldn't do them. Um, so we don't have as much data because non-clear cell patients were excluded from the initial trials, but subsequent trials suggest that IO approaches are applicable. Uh, they're not specifically approved there, but you can use them sort of based on the data from the, the clear cell approach. But we, to Ram's point, I think we need much more understanding and much more targeted approaches to those diseases. Because as you pointed out, Marston, you know, we're probably dealing with eight or 10 different you know, cancers in that non-clear cell bucket, many of which are never gonna respond to uh, IO therapy. So for example, the data for a chromophobe uh, kidney cancer is far less good than papillary. So it's these sort of, um, 
sort of intricacies that you have to take into account when, when uh, deciding what to do, but there's more options now than there were a couple of years ago, and, and that's important. Okay, I think we have time for one more question before we go to the post-test. Uh, Ron, Dr. Vassin, uh, you know, beautiful talk, my word, ugh, targeting these genes is just unbelievable to me. Uh, let me ask you a question. So a patient comes to me, I'm a urologic surgeon, and I got a pretty big tumor, and I take the do a nephrectomy maybe or something, and it's a big, anyway, patient's doing fine, but then now I'm six, eight months later, and uh, I now, I do a chest CT, and I've got two or three small lesions, okay? And maybe let's say it's clear cell. I got two or three small lesions. Now, I'm going to, of course, talk to my medical oncologist, which, of course, will be you. But, uh, but what, uh, how do you think about these? Is there a role, do you think, for, quote, active surveillance? Kind of, in other words, do we need to treat every, I mean, will our medical oncologist treat everybody? Or might they kind of watch things a little bit? How, how do you think about those? Um, I think it's, it's a fantastic question, uh, and it's a situation I think we face fairly commonly in the clinic. Uh, uh, and I think if you, you know, talk to multiple oncologists, you're going to find a wide array of opinions. Uh, and as with uh, choice of frontline therapy, you're going to see slightly different patterns of practice in the community versus what you see in academic centers. My own bias is that the, the decision needs to be individualized to each, each patient. Um, so. I look, in, look at factors like, you know, what's the bulk of disease? Do we have a sense of the pace of disease? Uh, and uh, if so, uh, if, 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 if the time to recurrence has been long, if the pace of disease appears to be slow, if the disease volume is small, the patient is asymptomatic, uh, I tend to you know, offer a lot of these patients uh, surveillance. Because uh, we know, despite the advances we've made with uh, immunotherapy, the vast majority of patients we're not going to cure. The vast majority of patients are going to have side effects. Um, and uh, I, in my in my practice, have tended to delay the, the time uh, at which we expose these patients to you know to these side effects. Oh, okay. Another factor also is sometimes when you follow these patients long enough, they don't have additional uh, lesions come up. You can actually subject them to curative or resection with curative intent. Uh, so that's another reason I think to follow some of these patients. Oh, uh, in okay. Thank, thank you very much. I think that's really helpful to know that. I mean, to really think that, no, that, that, that's actually going to be an option going forward. So again, um, really like to thank you for, uh, for uh, being with us uh, this morning, for joining us for diagnosis and management of localized, locally advanced, advanced uh, kidney cancer presented by the AUA and very, very, very much appreciate uh, Dr. Ball, Dr. McDermott, Dr. Shurnavassan uh, for taking the time to be with us. And more importantly than that, for doing the great work that you're doing uh, to help our patients with kidney cancer. It makes a big difference and it's just amazing how exciting things are and how much progress has been made in dealing with this disease, both from a surgical point of view, incredible, as well as a therapeutic point of view, for cancer that when we started our work, for sure, uh, many people thought was just untreatable. And I agree with what Dr. McDermott and everyone has said, we're working to cure all patients with this disease. That's why we're here, that's what we do. Anyway, thank you all. Really, really loved hearing your talks and learned an enormous amount myself. If our audience learned as much as I have, for example, uh, 
great session. Thank you all very much.